The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, I hope you all got a handout. We're uh, continuing our look at um, uh, the church from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. We're in chapter 47. We're talking tonight about church government, which is known as polity. Um, Polity is is an unusual word. It is spelled properly on there. Don't think that it's misspelled. There is another word like policy, you know, but that's not this word. We're looking at polity, and polity is the way that a church is government is governed. Uh, the government of the church. Uh, the questions that uh, Wayne Grudem asked concerning this: How should a church be governed? How should church officers be chosen? And should women serve as pastors of churches? We're not getting to all those questions tonight. This is just part one. I try to be, I'm trying to be better about these handouts because I just develop them and when I get to about eight or nine, ten pages, I stop, you know, and then you get the handout next week and you don't know if this is the same one and it never is. So I'm going to try to do better about part one, part two, part three, but this is the first look at chapter 47. Well, let's, let's take an overview first. There's a variety of church government models that are available. There are a lot of different ways to govern a church and it's interesting how these different ways derive their support from uh, the scriptures. They all think that they can prove from the scriptures that this is the right way to govern a church. I find that interesting. Um, The Roman Catholic model is the worldwide government under the authority of one man, the Pope. He has the ultimate authority on earth. He's called the Vicar of Christ on earth. And uh, he is... uh, you know, vice-regent under Christ, and as they believe, um, and it follows an Episcopal structure under him. So there are um, various other officers under the Pope, uh, the College of Cardinals and archbishops and bishops down to priests and on it goes. So there's, it's a very hierarchical structure, very uh, organized, etc., with the Pope at the head. That's the Roman Catholic system. The Episcopalian uh, is similar. Um, Bishops with regional authority there, there is no pope. That's the big difference. Uh, Archbishops have a kind of a regional authority and they meet together more more or less as equals. Um, uh, But they have authority over the churches under them. Um, And archbishops are over those bishops, uh, etc. So there's a a structure in that pattern, very similar to the Catholic Church, but um, different in that they don't have a pope. The Presbyterian system... Uh, churches grant regional authority to presbyteries and national authority to general assemblies. Okay, now in these first three uh, structures, there, it is a more or less a top-down system. Um, and the denomination, the denominational leadership, for example, has the authority to dictate to the local church. You know, Let's take some key issues. For example, the buying and selling of church property. Uh, the ownership of the church property in an uh, you know, Anglican or Episcopalian church, etc., uh, is not with the local congregation. Neither, for example, uh, another example is the authority to call or to release a pastor, a priest. All right? Those are assigned by the denomination. Now, uh, churches, that, or denominations, sorry, sorry, denominations that have run into difficulties uh, recently on the ordination of women, and the ordination of homosexuals in particular, 
Uh, we may have Anglican brothers in Christ. Um, they may be priests, so to speak, in a, in a local uh, congregation, but they can't do anything about these decisions that are made. The local congregation may not want a woman priest established as their shepherd, their pastor, their priest, but they have no choice in the matter. And so that's, that's the top-down thing. They, uh, the, the building, the property, is owned by the denomination. So if the people don't like it, they can just leave, all right? But they can't sell the property or change the name of the church or any of that. It's just, it's top-down. And so that's been a real big problem for conservative Anglicans, for example, who don't believe in the changes that they've seen in their denomination. I've met some of them. I've been at pastor's conferences with them. They're wonderful people. Um, I don't agree with them about certain things. Obviously, I'm a Baptist. They're Anglican. But, you know, um, we agree about the inspiration authority of Scripture. We agree about uh, the message of the gospel, the need for personal repentance and faith. Those kinds of things are all in place. And we share a lot of things in common. And they're greatly grieved by the things that are happening in their denomination. But there's not a lot they can do about it. And frankly, if they speak out against it, they're going to get disciplined. You know, they're going to get they're going to get punished, etc. So, again, I'm just using these examples to show that top down structure of the Roman Catholic and the Episcopalian and, and Presbyterian. By the way, the Methodist Church would be similar to the Episcopalian and all that. You know, you really all you have to know is just some of the history of where these denominations came from. You know, most of them are kind of more or less Catholic, you know, is what they are. And they broke off from the Roman Catholic Church, like the Lutheran Church, for example, broke off from the Catholic Church on the issue of justification, but they retained a lot of elements of the service. The Lord's Supper, the Mass, etc., is very similar. The Anglican Church, if you, if, you, if you know anything about the history, King Henry VIII was decorated by the Pope, basically, for, for arguing against Luther, you know? He was a primo Roman Catholic king until his wife just couldn't produce him a male heir and he wanted a divorce and the Pope wouldn't give him one. So he said, fine, I'll start my own church. But the church he started was pretty much the Catholic church with him as the pope, basically, the king as the pope. So that's how that, that worked. And uh, you know, then along came the Puritans who said, we're not reformed enough and we need to reform more and become you know, more faithful to Scripture. And so that's how that whole thing came. And the Methodists were uh, out working from the Anglican church. So you can see just the family tree there. And so the structure is going to follow a very similar pattern. And then up popped the Baptists or Anabaptists who just basically were simple people who read the Bible and said, we don't see any of this stuff. You know, we don't see infant baptism and we don't see the presbyteries or the, you know, the other stuff. We just see the local church and that's what they came up with. So you have the Baptist slash congregational model. And basically what that is, is that all the authority of the church resides with the local church and that there's no... Uh, no ecclesiastical authority over the local church, the independence of the local church. Therefore, that local church has the authority to hire and fire a pastor, has the authority to buy and sell property, to change the church name, change their constitution and bylaws, any of those things. Those, those, that power resides with the um, local church. So that's uh, congregational, Baptist, independent. Uh, there's no formal governing authority beyond the local congregations. All of the associations are voluntary and non-binding. Okay, so what that means is our involvement in the Southern Baptist uh, Convention is a voluntary thing. Uh, we basically do it by sending them money, and uh, I think that's it. Pretty much, you have to if you sign on their statement of faith and send them money, you're a member of the Southern Baptist denomination. They have no authority, however, to make us do anything. They can't make us. 
They have no compelling authority over us. It's a voluntary association of independent Baptist churches for the purpose of mission, ministry. That's what it is. And the same is true over the associational level, like we belong to the Yates Association. It's the exact same thing. It's a voluntary association of independent churches who gather together for the purpose of doing ministry. Do you see the difference of the models? That's I'm just trying to get you to see the difference of the models. Susan, you had a question. Um, unfortunately, I see them away, but um, do the models have an impact only on the way the church is governed, or does it do the uh, different uh, forms have an effect outside the church? Or? In what kinds of ways? Well, I don't know. I'm just thinking today I saw in the newspaper where the Pope had made a statement in favor of Turkey gaining admittance to the EU, and my first thought was, what? <laughs> you know, why is the Pope? And I just wondered if there were any implications for how the church related to the world in these different models, or if it really does well, just affect how the church is governed within the church. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, you know, it all depends on what you mean by governed. You know, um, if the Pope makes that kind of a statement, he can then enforce it by making bishops and archbishops do X, Y, and Z, and they have to do it. So, but if he's just making a statement, it's my opinion that, whatever. Some people think this whole idea of papal infallibility is like anytime he speaks that he's perfect, whatever. They don't claim that. It's when he speaks ex cathedra from the throne, the, the, the seat. That's what cathedral is. It's a, it's a throne where a bishop or archbishop, I don't remember, but that's where they sit. So that's the, it's the church of an archbishop, I think, is a cathedral. I think that's what it means. And it means ex cathedra. When he speaks from that, then he's inerrant. That hasn't happened since the 19th century. Pretty much everything the Pope says ex cathedra has to do with Mary. I mean, that's, you know, whenever they're speaking ex cathedra, it's something the Bible can't prove or disprove. It's something about Mary, like she was bodily assumed into heaven or the Immaculate Conception, those kinds of things. That's where the Pope tends to make his statements, ex cathedra. But uh, for the most part, the Pope has the authority to enforce certain things. He just has to decide, you know, if, if this is an issue important enough to him to enforce it. I don't know what he can tell all the Roman Catholic Church in Europe to do about it. You know, uh, back in the day when the Pope was really powerful, he could excommunicate kings and all that and... Uh, there was a time that a king came groveling to the Pope and asked forgiveness and to be reinstated. And the king thought about it. I mean, the Pope thought about it for a little while and then reinstated him. I mean, that was the day when the Pope was the man. But now it's it's a little bit different. So let's keep going. So these are the variety of church government models. Obviously, there's not infinite number, but you know, these four are probably the primary ones that you would see. Now, the key question is, is there any one clear New Testament pattern for church government? That's the question. Is the New Testament clear about this, establishing one pattern for all to follow? Or are there general guidelines and patterns established but not clear commands? Or is there flexibility within the New Testament for various structures? Okay. Now, one thing that Grudem points out is this is not a major doctrine, and therefore there is room for charitable disagreement. I had a, a pleasant afternoon meeting today with somebody who was asking questions about believer baptism. Uh, she was considering um, becoming a member. And so we went through all of the evidence. She had been baptized as an infant in another denomination. And uh, she just wanted to know why she had to go through that again and be baptized again. And I said, I guarantee you that you will not be baptized again. I said, if you are baptized, it'll be because you are convinced you were not baptized the first time. All right. So, um, you know, other than that, it's not going to happen. I don't believe I was baptized again. Um, something happened to me when I was an infant as a Roman Catholic child, and they did that to me, but I don't call it baptism. I only call it baptism just so you know what I'm talking about. 
but it wasn't genuine baptism, et cetera. So we had this discussion. But she said, isn't it sad how there's such disagreement about these issues and so much, you know, hatred and division and all that? And I said, you know, I have to be honest with you. The division over infant baptism is one of the most amicable in the, in the church. For the most part, people that disagree over it tend to be very friendly with one another and don't, get, don't have major problems. I, I think divisions over predestination, over women in ministry, and all that tend to be much more vitriolic than this one. Um, you know, and the same is true of this church government issue. They're very similar. In other words, lots of Presbyterians and Baptists get along famously. As a matter of fact, almost too famously, one church I know and one pastor I really respect tried to kind of blur the distinction between um, Pado-Baptist and Baptist churches and kind of have us all be one big happy family. And he was thinking, basically, you know, um, how can we make requirements for church membership more narrow than Christ makes for the kingdom of God? Now, that may seem very compelling until you start to think about it. Of course, the requirements for local church membership are more narrow than than the requirements for the kingdom of God. We require that you kind of be here regularly, all right? I mean, that you kind of live close enough. That, well, I actually don't care if you live close enough. You could live in Malibu if you want, but that's an awfully long commute to this local church. And if we don't see you for long, long stretches of time, you're going to probably bump into church discipline at some point. And so, I mean, we just think you need to be here, all right? So therefore, just kind of by definition, that geographical requirement shows that we have a more narrow requirement than is required for the kingdom of God. I hope you don't believe that living in the Raleigh-Durham area is required in order to go to heaven. You don't think that, do you? Okay, good. All right, so local churches have the right to have a more narrow and restricted definition of what it means to be a member than we think is required for the kingdom of God. And so division on church polity tends to be somewhat amicable. People like, I see your point of view, this one is our point of view, and that's kind of how it works. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't make our case and try to understand why it is these folks of the Episcopalian type approach, why do they see a top-down structure in the New Testament? I think it's good to know that. And I think there are reasons. There are reasons, for example, after Acts 15, when they uh, came up with some decisions based on, on the issue of circumcision and all that, and they wrote a letter, and it was given to all the churches to obey. That's what it said. So, you know, but they say, oh, these are the apostles and all that. Yeah, but James was not an apostle and he was one of the leaders there at the church of Jerusalem. So there's reasons they say it and I want to know what those reasons are. Go ahead. So if we are more restrictive mm-hmm. in who we accept as a member of the church than who is accepted in the kingdom of God, then we can generally say membership in the church implies you have, it's basically responsibility. We don't yeah. limit the privileges no. of membership because that would be limiting yeah. the privileges more than... Right. But we're saying there's certain covenant, exactly, there are covenant responsibilities that we agree to. That's what membership is. It's an agreement, voluntary agreement, that we're going to meet certain responsibilities for each other. And if we don't meet them, then our membership doesn't mean anything. And, you know, that's the whole argument we had to make in reference to disciplining people who weren't coming here anymore. They weren't worshiping, but they were able-bodied and lived locally and could come but didn't. And we had to work through that whole thing and say the church has the right, and frankly, the church had the responsibility to deal with those things so that we maintain our you know, our um, covenant commitments to each other, et cetera. You know, I, I've said before that, that failure to attend church is a masking sin is what it is. It's not the real sin. It's that other stuff's going on behind the scenes, that the, the people have lost their affection for Christ. They don't want to be in church. Or there's, there's broken relationships in the church. They, they don't like the pastor or some Sunday school teacher or just even some other church member. They had a falling out, and so they stopped coming. And my feeling is stopping coming is a sin. I mean, but it's a masking sin. There's another one behind it. 
You know, it's kind of like somebody who's got a drinking problem. Their breath always smells like mint, you know. The, the problem is not the mint. The problem is what they're masking, you know. So when we smell the mint, we start to wonder, you know, why do you always reek of binaca? You know, what's going on there? You know, this kind of thing. You know, do you have halitosis? Is there something happening here? Or is there something deeper going on? And so, to me, failure to attend church tends to be a masking sin. And we want to try to find out as best we can what's going on, but you can't always find it out. You know, sometimes they're like, don't come into my life. I don't want, you know, I'm just not coming back to your church. It's like, all right. Well, then you can't be a member. You know, it doesn't mean, you know, that that we think you're definitely going to hell or anything like that. It's not that. It's just that we have certain requirements. How did we even get into this? Anyway, back onto the page. Whatever. This is not a major doctrine. By the way, I believe in something called a hierarchy of certainty of truth. Uh, You will not find those words anywhere in the Bible, but let me explain what I mean. There are, that all truths that are taught in Scripture are not equally clear or equally clearly substantiated from text of Scripture. In other words, not everything is equally clear. And some things are really, really clear and really, really important. Other things are really, really clear but not so important. You know, there's some really, really clear things that are talked about many times, but they're really not central issues. They're just there many times. Um, other doctrines are... Um, you know, a little bit lower on the hierarchy of certainty of truth, but you really need to figure them out for running a local church, you know. I, let me give you an example of, of something that's a little bit lower on the hierarchy of certainty of truth. And by the way, there's no hierarchy of truth. I mean, it's true or false. You, you know that, don't you? I mean, something's either true or it's not. There's no... What's that? No, I mean, it's either true or false. There's no confusion in the mind of God, Okay. He doesn't have four different models of church government. I, you know, we, we struggle with these things because and Jesus settled it all for us in Matthew 22 and he said, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. That's why we have problems. And you think, well, each, people can, each person can make their case. I said, yes, but just because you can make a case doesn't mean you're right. The devil's making cases all the time on every issue of scripture. You know, did God really say that you would you know, die if you eat from that. I mean, he's making cases all the time. That's what he does. But just because you can make a case doesn't mean that the truth isn't taught there. But what I'm saying is that there's some things that just church history has proven that godly people just disagree over. That people who in all other ways are showing clear patterns of obedience to the scripture, they're, they're faithful in every other way, but they believe this about infant baptism, let's say. And other people just show those exact same patterns of godliness and, and love for the Lord and knowledge of His Word, but they are Baptistic. And they love each other and all that. They just don't agree. And they can talk till the kingdom comes and resolves it all, okay? Uh, at which point, we know what church government will be. It will be monarchy. That's what the church government's going to be at that point. Jesus the King. And we'll just do what He says. But in the meantime, we've got human beings who are given authority and we try to find out how we submit to them and how it works, right? So that's what I'm talking about when I say that this is not one of those major doctrines. Um, Not all biblical truth is equally certain. Some things are clearer and more certain. Some things not so clear. So, by the way, that hierarchy of certainty is not in Grudem. Um, It's just something I stuck in there. Church polity, namely the doctrine of church government, is not as clear as, say, the Trinity or deity of Christ, that kind of thing. And therefore, many evangelicals differ on these things and can do so charitably. I'm part of a group of evangelical pastors that's been meeting. D.A. Carson organized it. Um, and a number of really you know, excellent pastors are involved in it, and I have the privilege of being part of it. And it's really, uh, for me, a wonderful thing to get to know some of these Anglican evangelicals 
and to find out what's been going on in their denomination and what it's like. And we don't agree on, there's some things we probably will never agree on. And we just definitely, in order to have the discussions we're having, we agree not to talk about those issues, okay? Because we could spend forever debating infant baptism or church government or whatever. We just don't waste time on that, okay? But for us, I don't think it's a waste of time. I think it's important for us to try to understand these things. Arguing for one view or another is appropriate, but charitable demeanor is essential, okay? However, it's still very important. I mean, let's let's start with the premise that everything in the Bible needs to be there, okay? And that every issue that we cover, I mean, there's no, there's nothing that we should say, oh, that's a waste of time or whatever. I mean, it's in the Bible. God wants us to know it. Larry. You will not give us an example of uh, hierarchy. Yes. Your, your, the millennium, okay? You look at the millennium. We don't need to resolve it in order to run a local church. Is there or is there not going to be an actual physical thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, Okay. And uh, there are arguments for and against it. Evangelicals disagree. You know, there are godly people who really love the Lord and believe in inerrancy and all that that are amillennial. And then there are some that are premillennial and some even that are postmillennial. Um, and, but those folks all can be in a local church. They all can. You don't have to resolve it in order to run a local church. But infant baptism, you have to resolve. Because when that, like, I was thinking about that pastor that wanted to include Presbyterian families as members. When they have children, babies, are they going to have them baptized? Well, they already said no, definitely. They're still a Baptist church. Well, what are those families going to do who believe in infant baptism? They're going to have to go to some other church to have their children baptized. But what is the significance of that baptism? It's really a problem. It's, they will say, the Presbyterians will say, it's an entrance into a covenant community. Where's the community? You know? It's a real problem. I, I did, I'd say it was totally unresolvable. And so did the other elders think it was unresolvable and said, we're not going there. And so they're having an interesting discussion, which I'm watching from afar. So at any rate, you know, but they really like each other and they want to be in church together. And that's how, how it's, so it's way too amicable there almost. I think we had to really like each other, but not do church together until we can kind of get it resolved. And if that never happens, then we'll all get our theology fixed when we die. Okay. Um, for all of this, we should not conclude it doesn't matter how the church is organized. If there is a pattern established in the New Testament, straying from that pattern will bring about long-term problems for the church. So we need to do our work in this area, carefully looking at biblical evidence. We should not imagine that if God has told us what kind of church government is best, that if we stray from that, that that is free of charge. I mean, there will be issues. You know, one of the cases that Congregationalists and Baptists tend to make is that just historically, Baptistic churches tend to be more resistant to heresy than the other structures are. In other words, heresy tends to spread more quickly through a top-down structure than it does through these congregational structure. I'm not saying that congregational churches are resistant, totally resistant to heresy. They're not. There are liberal Baptist churches. I mean, the Northern Baptist denomination um, went liberal. I mean, around the, 20th, the turn of the 20th century and all that. Most of those churches were liberal. The congregational churches up in New England, where I, I mean, they're almost all of them were liberal. So I'm not saying that it's, but they just have shown more resistance to it. That's all. It just takes longer for the contagion to spread. Anyway, so those are just some thoughts. Let's talk about church officers, all right? We're talking about polity, government, what, church, what is church government. So immediately you're going to go to the issue of who are the, gov- who are the governors, who are the rulers, the leaders. Uh, what does the Bible say about that, etc.? So what is a church officer? Grudem gives us this definition. A church officer is someone who has been publicly recognized as having the right and responsibility to perform certain functions for the benefit of the whole church. That's a good definition. Basically, the church recognizes this individual as having the right and responsibility to do certain things. Okay? So you don't think of it as shocking if I decide that we'll have two sermons on Psalm 50. 
I mean, that's within my purview to do that. It is within your purview if my preaching is not ministering or not ministering to you accurately or, or well or it's heretical or whatever, it's your purview to remove me from this office. That's the way I understand our relationship, at least in part. There's many other aspects to it, but in that. So it's not shocking. It would be shocking if you observed another church member physically bump me out of the pulpit on Sunday and preach what he thought was best uh, to preach. I'm not a big guy. I'm easily physically bumped. You know, at that point, you're saying that that person doesn't have the right or the responsibility to do that. So that's a church officer, somebody who has the right or responsibility. You don't think of it as shocking for the um, Budget and Finance Committee to present a church budget. I mean, that's what they were commissioned to do, etc. So that's what officers are. Grudem makes some excellent points about this. Such people need public recognition in order to fulfill their responsibilities. Uh, for example, it would not be appropriate for people to wonder from week to week who was to receive the offering and deposit it in the bank or for various people to argue that they had been gifted to take that responsibility in any particular week. Now, wouldn't that be fun? The orderly functioning of the church requires that one person be recognized as having that responsibility. Similarly, the pastor who is responsible to do Bible teaching each Sunday morning must be recognized as having that right and responsibility. If this were not the case, then many people might prepare sermons and claim the right to preach. We'd be here an awfully long time, friends. Either that or the person who prepared that sermon uh, would feel very disappointed after having put all that effort in. Or on some Sundays, no one prepared, in which case you have a very short Sunday. Say, nobody, nobody ready? Well then, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May, you know, whatever, off you go. No, that's not the way to go. Some Sunday nights, no one prepare. We need things done decently in good order. You know, there's a famous uh, uh, story about uh, Spurgeon and somebody came to him saying that the Lord had led him to preach at Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit the next day. And... Uh, you know, this is, the, this is the church that was renowned in all the world. People came from all over the world to hear Spurgeon preach. You know, literally 10,000 people would hear him. And so here's this individual who's been told by the, by the Lord that he was to preach at Metropolitan. And, and Spurgeon said, well, until the Lord tells me, you're not going to do it. So basically, I need to kind of ratify that voice of the Lord, you know. So that's, it was his responsibility. He was the pastor of that church. And so a key verse, obviously, in, is, in polity is 1 Corinthians 14.40, let all things be done decently and in order. There's an orderliness to things, and that matters. God is a God of order, astonishingly so. When you look even at the molecular and atomic level, there's just an incredible amount of order in God's universe. And so um, we believe in order. And, and you can see, I traced this theme out once. And there's just so many ways that God shows a delight for order. Like, for example, the order in which the tribes of Israel were to march out when they were traveling in the desert. You know, first the tribe of Judah and then on and through. It was just really quite remarkable. And I think it was all a prophecy of how Jesus was going to be the lion of the tribe of Judah and lead. But there's just such an orderliness to it. When they camped, there was an arrangement of where the tabernacle was and who was where and all that. And God is a God of order. And it's not a bad thing. It's actually a delightful and wonderful thing. I think Satan is a god of chaos and anarchy and disorder. All right, so other gifts do not need public recognition. They just need to be exercised like the gift of helping or hospitality or faith. We don't need a ceremony to recognize people with those kinds of gifts. We don't need a vote, whatever. Those folks just need to use their gifts. All right, just use them. That's all. But some people you really do need to know that that's their function. All right. Now, uh, that's uh, just a general discussion of church officers. Let's talk about the officers that are mentioned in the Bible. First, we have apostle. Now, the, officer, uh, the office of apostle 
Uh, Grudem says he has a unique role and responsibility to speak and write words that were themselves the very words of God in an absolute sense. All right, so this is somewhat of a job description of being an apostle. When the things you wrote had you know, the authority of the very words of God. Thus, apostles had the right to, uh, right to write words that became scripture and were immediately authoritative. You know, you remember how Paul deals with this and people have stumbled over this. Like um, in 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about um, marriage and uh, he says, you know, something that the Lord says. And then another place he says, not the Lord, but I. And people think that this means, well, it's at a lower level of authority. He's not saying that, actually. He's not. He's an apostle. What he's saying is that I have no direct statement from Jesus. There's no red letter edition verses on this. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you what I, am, what I think as an apostle. And so, you know, you have that equal, equal authority. I'm not a big fan of the red letter editions. By the way, I was, I was reading today, um, and it was talking about uh, the baptism of Jesus. In my red letter edition of the Bible, Jesus' uh, words, let it, be, let it be so now, we must fulfill all righteousness right there in red. But the statement, this is my beloved son, with him I'm well pleased, is in black. I'm thinking, how does that work? I think God the Father, maybe he should get blue or some other color, you know? But anyway, I, you know, maybe it's helpful. I guess you can find quickly the words of Jesus. What, what he's saying is that there's no direct statement from Jesus, but he's not in any way diminishing the authority of the statement he's about to make. Yes? Were there any uh, scriptures or any writings attributed to any of the other apostles besides the ones that are in, in scripture now? Yeah, there's evidence. Not held to be canonical? Oh, yes. There's evidence that there's other letters to the Corinthians. This is the work of New Testament scholars. They say that there, there was a, a letter that was lost, etc. And I think it may be similar to what I said earlier about the Pope speaking ex-cathedra. You know, yeah, I wouldn't say that every script of paper, everything that Paul wrote was, was inspired scripture. I'm not saying that. But he carried himself with an authority that nobody else had except the other apostles. And he said, you know, he was talking to the Corinthians. He said, now when I come, I'm going to come as an apostle. And those people who claim to be apostles but are not, you know, we'll see what kind of power they have because the kingdom of heaven is not a matter of talk but of power. And what Paul's saying is basically, you know, he says at one point very strikingly, he says, shall I come with a whip or with gentleness and love? You're like, well, what is the whip? Well, you don't have to ask the family of Ananias and Sapphira what the whip looked like, okay? Peter said, how have you conspired to lie to the Holy Spirit? He didn't touch him. Those people fell dead because the power of God was behind Peter as an apostle and leader of the church, you see. And I think what's happening was there was great disorder in the church at Corinth and there were people murmuring against Paul's authority and all that. He said, I have authority. It was given me by the Lord himself. That authority was given for building you up, he says, not tearing you down. That's what I'm here for. But don't mess with me. Basically, he's saying that, okay? He said, what do you prefer? You choose. Shall I come with a whip or in gentleness and... Uh, Meekness. That's, you look up the verse, but that's what, what I think is what's behind that is not that Paul's going to be beating people up. That's not it. It's that God's authority is behind to organize and to put structure. And these pseudo-apostles, these, these super-apostles or whatever, that are so denigrating Paul's ministry, he's saying you can't denigrate this which God, which Christ himself has established without yourself being false. They're false teachers. Because he knew his authority was genuine from the Lord. That's what he's saying. So there's this role of authority with the apostle. This proves, in my opinion, and Grudem's as well, that the, the fact that we should not expect this office to continue today. 
for no one can add to the words of Scripture. Okay? So in other words, I think this thing's done. It's finished. And there's more evidence to that, which we'll get to in a minute. But, you know, there are some churches where you hear apostle so-and-so. Okay? We'll talk about that in a minute. But I just don't think that that's... I don't think it's biblical. I think the time for this is finished. I think there was an age of the apostles, and I think it's over now. I think it's done. All right? And I'll tell you that in a minute. There is a general use of the word. Sometimes we speak of William Carey as being the apostle to India. In this broad sense, uh, there are still trailblazing missionaries today that could use this title, supposedly, I guess. I don't think it's helpful. Sometimes you see it in biographies, you know, Christian biographies. You'll see the word like that, apostle to so-and-so and all that. I think the reason for that is, <clears throat> strictly speaking, the word means sent one, apostello, the one who has been sent out. And so therefore, sometimes, occasionally, it is translated messenger. As you get here in Philippians, Epaphroditus, the NIV gives us messenger. He is your messenger. It's literally, he is your apostle. He's the one you sent out to bring the money. They brought money. Epaphroditus brought money. Um, and uh, he was their messenger, Robert. Is that, word, is that where the word post, as in post office, comes from? I don't know. <laughs> That's an English word. You'll have to look up, you etymology expert. This is the second etymology moment we've had today. What were we, what were we talking Oh, Ron Halbricks. That's right. Etymology experts. Anyway, I don't know. Look it up, Robert. You'd be just the guy to find it out. Let us know. Uh, however, the most common use of the word is that of an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, that kind of thing. Jesus himself, by the way, is called an apostle. He is the apostle of our, of our faith, etc. in the book of Hebrews. So he's sent out from heaven, a sent one. All right? But the most common use of this word is, is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, that kind of thing. Now, what are the qualifications of an apostle? Well, there are two qualifications established in Scripture. Number one is having seen Jesus as his, after his resurrection with one's own eyes, thus being an eyewitness of the resurrection. That's one. Number two having been specifically commissioned by Christ as is an apostle. That's on page four. But don't turn to page four yet. Those are the two. I just wanted to read them. Let's look at this first one, having seen Jesus as after his resurrection with his own eyes. In my opinion, this was the whole point. Okay, basically the, the apostles, the original 12, okay, of course, minus Judas, who was, you know, not a genuine follower and he was replaced. But um, their job was to witness the things Jesus did. Okay? And so they were with Jesus from the whole time, the whole time that Jesus, it says, went in and out among them, beginning from John's baptism right on through the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension. They saw it all. His public ministry, they witnessed it all. Okay? So why is that important? Because they became eyewitnesses to the rest of the world. Everything, you, know, you talk about a chain being only strong as its weakest link. Well, our link to Jesus, our, the first link of this incredible chain that has come down from that are the apostles, the eyewitnesses of Jesus. And some of them wrote down their eyewitness testimony. Matthew wrote it down. We have the Gospel of Matthew. John wrote it down. We have the Gospel of John. Luke talked to them, the eyewitnesses, and wrote it down. We have the Gospel of Luke. Mark, in my opinion, talked to Peter, and we have Peter's testimony through Mark, etc. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's how we know about Jesus' life. They were eyewitnesses of his life. That's key. It's essential. John openly talks about it uh, here. Right, first of all, Luke 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of these things that have been fulfilled among us. So Susan, that would be the gospels that people started but never finished or they just didn't make it. They didn't make the cut. Many have undertaken. 
Okay? So people thought, boy, we've got to write this down. Okay? But not everybody thought, boy, we've got to write this down, made it into the Bible. Okay? But Luke did because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Now, the ultimate eyewitnesses. I'm not saying all the eyewitnesses were apostles. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying all the apostles were definitely eyewitnesses. You had to be an eyewitness, all right? Mary was an eyewitness, definitely. She was an excellent eyewitness. And frankly, she was the only eyewitness that Luke talked to about some of the events. You know, you get some of that stuff, the early parts of of Jesus' life, the shepherds, Luke 2, all that. It's got to come from Mary. I think it it had to come from Mary. And so Luke talked to Mary, and we have those charming accounts that are so, you know, the the focal point of December, you know? (laughs) Um, so she was an eyewitness, but she was not an apostle because there's two qualifications. You also had to be identified as Christ and chosen to be an apostle, etc. Second Peter 1.16, Peter talks about this. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And the, probably the clearest eyewitness statement is in 1 John 1, 1 through 3. Uh, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. That's the link. All right, from the one chain to the next, from the one link to the next is the proclamation, right? They saw it, they turned, they proclaimed. The hearers then heard and off it went. That's how it's been ever since. And they wrote it down so that future generations could hear the proclamation of what they saw with their five senses, what they experienced with their five senses, okay? This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. It just galls me when you read uh, liberal type commentators that say it really doesn't matter much whether Jesus ever lived or if any of this stuff ever really happened. What matters is how it makes us feel, what effect it has on our lives. Does it make us better husbands and wives? Does it bring happiness and meaning to our lives? What would John have said to that? He is belaboring the point that they proclaimed the things they actually saw. They were eyewitnesses. This really happened. And why? Because God is the God of history. He's the God of space and time and history. It mattered. It really happened. There was a place. There was a time. It occurred. And what that does is it gives meaning to our physical lives too, doesn't it? I mean, you start thinking like that, you know, what that means is my life doesn't mean anything either. I mean, nothing means anything after a while. Why is it important that I be a good husband or my wife be a good wife? None of that matters if history doesn't matter. But history does matter. That's why there's a judgment day. And that's why Jesus had eyewitnesses looking at his life so that we could have a sense of the certainty of the things that we've been taught, Luke says. Certainty. Acts 1, 21 and 22. All right, after Judas killed himself, he hanged himself and... New Testament scholars put it together that the branch broke and fell and his intestines spilled out and he was just thoroughly just, it was just disgusting and he's out because of his betrayal of Jesus, he's out. And so in Acts 1, Peter leads the 120 that are in that upper room to replace him. And so it says, therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, it's interesting that they set the time, the beginning of the time frame from John's baptism. He was with, uh, with us the whole time. Now, who would that eliminate? Who would not meet that criteria? Paul, right? 
So Grudem is saying you just need to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. Okay, Was Paul an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes. <laughs> Don't most of his letters say that? So definitely he was. You can't have inspiration or inerrancy and Paul not be an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Grudem's right. You just had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. Was Paul an eyewitness of the resurrection? How was he an eyewitness of the resurrection? On the road to Damascus, he saw the risen Lord. That'll do it. <laughs> That's it right there. He was an eyewitness. All right. 1 Corinthians 9, 1, Paul says, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Do you see it? That's it. So that's his, that's, that right away gives you a sense of what he thinks an apostle is. All right. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. He gave me a special deal. He let me see him on the road to Damascus after Jesus had ascended into heaven. And thus I meet the criteria for being an apostle. But you can see just from 1 Corinthians 9.1 and 1 Corinthians 15.5-10, you can see how Paul thinks that being an eyewitness of the resurrection, that makes you an apostle. But that's not all. You also have to specifically be called by Jesus and established in the office. Okay, Frankly, you would have to say that would be the only requirement. If Jesus calls you and says, so-and-so is an apostle, whether they've seen me or not, all right, yes, Lord, he's an apostle. You know, We'll accept it. But uh, we can see the importance of talking about the eyewitness because they make such a big deal about it. It's so clearly a, a requirement. And so, having been specifically commissioned by Christ as his apostle, Mark 3, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them to be apostles so that they might be with him. Do you see that? So that they might be with him. Why is that important? Well, there's at least two reasons. Why would it be important for the apostles to be with him? To be witnesses, right? How can you be witness if you're not with him? You've got to be with him. And so you're going to be my little camcorders, okay? You're going to watch and see these things. And, and it's really like that. It's very much like that. Remember when, when um, Jesus was anointed by the woman at Bethany? And they're giving him a really hard time about it, the apostles were. Especially Judas, who's thinking about the waste of money. And very upset. This actually, I think, was the precipitating event that led him to go after the 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. He was so freaked out by the waste. And Jesus supported it. You know, and it's ironic that Jesus says she's doing it preparing for burial and it's because of that that Judas goes and makes it happen. It's really quite amazing, but he's just a money lover. But all the apostles were struggling with it. They were really, you know, murmuring. And Jesus said, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. And then she says, what she has done is prepare me for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. How's that going to happen? Well, the apostles will write it down. Matthew wrote it down for us. He was there. He changed his mind later. By the time he wrote the Gospel of Matthew, he was thinking well of that woman, okay? That night, he wasn't thinking too well. But he was a camcorder. He observed it happen. And Jesus made a prediction that that detail would make it into the Gospel. Wherever this Gospel is preached, her story will be told along with it. That's quite remarkable, really. So, who are they, these 12? Well, these are the 12 he appointed. 
Simon, to whom he gave the name of name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to whom to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means son of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, I read those names because those were the 12 apostles, okay? We knew who they were. They were given names. Some of them had more than one name, like Simon had the name also Peter. So there's slightly different lists, etc. Luke 6, it says, When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, uh, son of James, Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So if you do studies on this, you know, you can find out who's who. You know, Levi is Matthew, etc. Who were the apostles? Well, the initial group uh, above were listed, 12 names. After Judas' death, they chose Matthias by Lot, Acts 1.26. Now, this group has an important eschatological role in the book of Revelation. What is it? Well, the names of the 12 apostles are on the 12 foundations of the city. Have you ever wondered who, what the 12 names are? Is it Matthias or Paul? Or did they slash it, you know? Matthias slashed Paul. People have often wondered about this. Who got left out? You know, remember how in, uh, in Revelation 7, you got the 12 tribes of, of Israel and Dan's left out entirely. And Joseph's on there and so is Manasseh, I think. You know, and Manasseh was the son of Joseph. It's very interesting, the list. I don't know. Book of Revelation is a fascinating book to try to interpret. But we don't need to because they don't tell us who the 12 are. But we know that the names of the 12 apostles are in the foundation city of the New Jerusalem. Okay? So here they are. So we have 13 that are vying for those 12 spots. We'll let the Lord sort it out. Remember, um, you know, how, how James and John wanted to sit at the right and the left of Jesus in the kingdom, remember? Remember what Jesus said? He didn't say, we don't have places like that. He didn't say that. He said, those places are for those for whom they've been prepared by the Father. Wow. Aren't you interested in who's sitting at the right and the left? I'm, I'm interested. So at any rate. Paul, also claimed to be an apostle, is seen above in 1 Corinthians 9, 1, 15, 50, uh, 15, 5 through 10. The term is used of others in the New Testament as already mentioned. I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. That's a troubling verse. Was James an apostle? I don't know. I mean, just look at Galatians 1, 9, 1, 19. Sorry, it seems that he was. I don't know. Acts 14, 14, it says, But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes. Well, that was when they wanted to offer sacrifices to them, you remember. And so there's this expression, plural, the, uh, the apostles, Barnabas, Barnabas and Paul. Now, you could say maybe this was the sense of they were the sent ones, the messengers sent out from the church in Antioch. It's possible. Um, it may be there was many as 15 apostles of this sort. I don't know. Uh, that's just speculation on Gruden's part. I'm not sure I share it. I think if you're going to go to Galatians with James and all that, I don't necessarily know that these were apostles in the same way because we don't have Jesus commissioning James or commissioning Barnabas like we do the way he commissioned these others. But at any rate, um, he's saying there may be as many as 15. All right, summary. The word apostle can be used in a broad or narrow sense. Broad sense is just messenger or pioneer missionary. It could be used in that way, but it might lead to confusion. In the more technical and common sense in the New Testament, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, it is reserved for those who meet the two criteria listed above. Having seen the resurrected Christ with his own eyes and having been commissioned by Christ as an apostle. In church history, by the way, none of the great leaders have ever accepted the title of apostle. Not Athanasius, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Wesley, Whitfield, or anyone else in church history. So, if you know of local churches where it's apostle so-and-so, I, I don't know, just be troubled at least or talk to the individual. Say, what are you thinking about? What's that? What is that about? 
uh, Grudem put it this way, if in any, any in modern times wants to take this title apostle to themselves, they immediately raise the suspicion that they might be motivated by an inappropriate pride and desire for self-exaltation along with excessive ambition and a desire for much more authority in the church than any one person should rightfully have. So that's pretty harsh in one sense, but I think I probably share that assessment. So all of that to say, I don't think First Baptist Church is going to have any apostles anytime soon. Okay. Any questions about that? Yes. It's a little bit um, peripheral, but yet spin off. Okay, so if the apostles wrote authoritative scripture, mm-hmm. um, how was the authenticity of a book like Hebrews established if they didn't really know the author? I mean, do they have other? Do they have? Does it have to meet more stringent requirements for scripture then? Well, it's an interesting discussion. I, you know, they, there are people that go into that whole canonical study and find out the ecumenical councils and what their criteria were. And we have writings from those councils in the 4th century, 5th century, I don't know. They had lots of debates about Hebrews and um, about Jude, Revelation. Revelation had a lot. James had some issues. So they worked it through. So you could make a study of what their criteria were. In my opinion, whatever made it, it's Scripture. Because, I mean, there is, there's almost no disagreement about those 27 books. Pretty much none. I mean, even the cults all acknowledge them as Scripture. Um, the Roman Catholic Church, all, all of them acknowledge them as Scripture. They have stood the test of time. I think God, it doesn't matter that, let's say, the book of James or a revelation got in there by 50.5%. That doesn't make a difference. I'm not saying it did. I'm just saying it, it doesn't make a difference. What matters is it made it. And so the same God that inspired it also saw it safely through the smoke-filled room process of getting it approved by the church and then the canonical list. So, But it's worth the study for it, an apostolic... But, but the author of Hebrews says that, that they heard it from the eyewitnesses. He says it in chapter 2. You look right in chapter 2, 1 through 4, he's claiming direct connection to the eyewitnesses. So if it's eyewitness account you're looking for, he says, this salvation was first proclaimed by the Lord, but it was testified to us by those who heard him, to us by those who heard him. So they're just one generation removed uh, from the apostle, if in fact it is removed. All right, could have been Paul. Some people think that Paul is the author of the Hebrews. Okay? All right, next office, officer, is elder slash pastor slash overseer slash bishop. See, I'm t- tipping my hand right away. Okay, I actually do not think there are four different offices here. I just think there are four different titles for the same office. And I actually don't think it's that hard to prove from Scripture. I think they are used pretty close to interchangeably in certain passages of Scripture. So therefore, these are all the same thing, I think. Plural elders is the pattern in all New Testament churches. Some say there are many patterns of polity in the New Testament. Grudem argues that a plurality of elders appointed in each local church, each local congregation, is the single pattern in the New Testament. That's what he argues, as any good Baptist would. Okay, um, but hey, it's his book. He can write it. I happen to agree with him. I think this is the pattern, and I think it actually isn't that difficult to prove. Key text, Acts 14.23. And by the way, the Episcopal friends will say, yes, there were, but where did they come from? Weren't they appointed by a hierarchy above them? That's what they'll argue. But uh, let's keep going. Key text, Acts 14.23. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord Uh, in whom they had put their trust. Now, let's not zero in on the appointed part. Let's realize that Paul is an apostle and he had the authority to do things that others can't do, okay? But uh, at any rate, the point is, what was appointed in each church? Elders, and the key letter there would be the S at the end of elder, right? 
elders. So in a local church, you have a plurality of elders. They appointed elders for them in each church, see? And with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. This is on Paul's first missionary journey, moving through Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch in Asia Minor. This shows this to be the normative pattern that Paul followed. I mean, this is what he did. As he went from place to place, this is what he did. He established elders and left. He is a frontier, trailblazing, church-planting missionary, and he's not staying long. And so he wanted to leave elders in his place to carry on. Now, they would go back later and visit and see how everyone was doing. And he would write letters to the elders, right, Philippi? To the elders and deacons of the church at Philippi. That's who He would write to them and instruct them so that they would instruct the people, etc. Acts 20, 17, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders, plural of the church. Okay? So there is a local church and there are elders in that one local church. All right, Titus 1, 5, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Okay? Elders in every town. Now, please don't think that there was a first Baptist church and a second Baptist church and a third Baptist church in every town in Crete. Okay? There weren't, wasn't, isn't, aren't. Well, there may be now, but there wasn't then. Okay, why? Because in every town, I think there's just one church. Okay, there wouldn't have had divisions or whatever. That would have been awful, schismatic. There's one church, and therefore in every town, there's going to be what? A body of elders, plurality of elders. That's what he's, that's what he's getting at here. Okay, plural elders. It's been noted that the singular form of elder is rare in the New Testament. No instance overturns the pattern of plural elders in each congregation. Okay, all of these verses that follow, these are just singular forms of the word elder, but it just basically means I'm addressing one of the elders or a situation connected with one of the elders. That's all. It doesn't mean that there was just one elder in that local church. There's no way you can look at any of these and come up with that. For example, 1 Timothy 5:19, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. That doesn't prove that there was just one elder in the church. It just means if you're going to have a problem with an elder, you have to follow a certain pattern. That's all. Um, and then the others are just requirements. Um, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. Okay, well, actually, that verse helps the plurality of elder case. You see it? To the elders among you, right, I appeal as a fellow elder. Okay, I'm one of an el- I am an elder. I'm appealing. And by the way, isn't it interesting that Peter calls himself an elder? He's an apostle, but he uses this title elder. That's what he was. And so my feeling is he's speaking there of his relationship to his local church. That's what he was to them. I'm not saying he wasn't also an apostle to them, but I'm just saying he was an elder. Okay. So five uses, never a sense that an elder was established alone in the congregation. Why am I making such an issue of this? Well, what's the usual pattern in the Baptist church? One pastor, the pastor, and then you've got deacons, right? That's very, very consistent. And the pastor has a certain role to play, and then you've got all the deacons, etc., So, you know, what are you going to say about that? Well, I guess what you're going to begin to say is if you believe this evidence, then that pattern is unbiblical. It's not unbiblical at the highest level like the deity of Christ and all that, but basically there is in every community a plurality of elders. Okay? Um, Keep going. By contrast, the plural form occurs 16 times to refer to local church leadership. For example, 1 Timothy 5.17, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. See that? So there's elders who are directing the affairs of the church. <clears throat> James 5:14 is any one of you sick, he should call the elders of the church to anoint him with oil and to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. 
So you've got elders who can do this. Uh, and then we already read this, 1 Peter 5, to the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Note that James and 1 Peter are both general epistles given to a wide geographical region, implying that a plurality of elders is the expected norm throughout that Christian region. In other words, in every community, you're going to have this plurality of elders. Now, what are other names for elders? Well, pastors, overseers, and bishops are some of the ways that these Greek words have come over into English. Okay? Um, Robert, while you're looking at post, you can look up bishop. I don't know where that comes from. Okay? I think episkopos comes over in the form of episcopalian, and presbyteros comes over in the form of Presbyterian. There you go. And so those we are familiar with. Um, the pastor thing is related to shepherding, like a pastoral symphony or whatever is related to a kind of a rural setting, etc. And so you've got a sense of shepherding. Those are the words. That's what we're dealing with. Okay. So elders are also called pastors, overseers, and bishops. Overseer is is almost an exact English, you know, like word uh, or phrase for phrase or part of word for part of word translation of episkopos. Epi means over, skopos means watching. Watching over overseers. That's what they are. Okay, so it's just basically they took the English words that corresponded to the Greek part, particles and brought it over into English. Overseers. So basically it's like this. Will this chair support my weight? So there, you can standing up, overseeing. Why is that? Well, it's, again, it's a shepherding sense. You can see better from up here. Okay, that's all. You can see me too. So I can see you, you can see me. It says, we will watch over one another in brotherly love. So that's where I get the sense of overseers. There's a sense of you have a perspective that enables you to look more generally at what's going on in people's lives. Not lording it over people. That's not what it's for. That's not why you're there. The shepherd doesn't go up on the hill because he thinks he's better than the sheep. That's not it. It's so he can be sure to see where all the sheep are so that the wolves don't eat them up. That's it, okay? So, um, overseer bishops, I don't know where that comes from. Robert's going to let us know. So, um, in the New Testament, depending on the translation. These terms, friends, are used interchangeably. Some deny this, but I don't know how they do it. I don't know how you pull it off. It's amazing the stuff people deny. <laughs> it's amazing my, the stuff my kids deny. I did not. I'm like, how can you say that? I saw you. Anyway, moving on. It's just amazing. Pastor is the most unusual of these. It's only used once in the New Testament, and yet it's the one most that we as Baptists at least are most common, common or, or comfortable with. We see it most frequently. The verb form to shepherd is actually used more commonly as we saw in 1 Peter. Other passages clearly prove the interchangeability of these terms. I think Acts 20 really does a good job with this. For Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders, presbyteros of the church. 2028, he says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you episkopos, overseers. Be shepherds, that is pastors, of the church of God. All three terms are used of the same people. Case closed, friends. I mean, my goodness. I mean, these are the same group of people and they're just used, all these different terms are used. It's just interchangeable. Okay? Titus also uses the terms interchangeably. Titus 1, 6, and 7, an elder, presbyteros, must be blameless, the husband of one wife, a man 
uh, whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer, Episcopos, is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless. Now, how many of us believe that Titus is actually talking about, you know, a di- or Paul's talking about a different title in verse 7? These are interchangeable. He's talking about the same people. They're just given different titles, that's all. So, I guess that's case doubly closed, all right? Therefore, there are not different offices being established here, but one, just one, pastor slash overseer, slash uh, elder, overseer, etc., sometimes an English bishop, okay? Now, let's stop there. Next time, we will pick up on what are the functions of an elder, okay? What do they do? Um, and we'll, we'll begin looking at that. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the evening that we've had, uh, the time we spent in your word. God, it is so important that our church be governed biblically. Father, that you would raise up uh, godly men, uh, that you would be filling them with your spirit and enabling them to do the tasks that you have entrusted to their care, knowing that they will give an account to you for how they shepherd the flock. God, help me in that role that you've called me to. Help me to be faithful and help the other pastors in this church now be faithful. And God, as we continue to look at polity for our church and see if changes need to be made to our bylaws and and see uh, if we need to become more faithful to the biblical pattern, God, give us wisdom and help us to make those changes uh, where needed. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.